Go to find Jonah chapter 1 with me. Jonah chapter 1. As advertised, welcome to our monthly Q&A night. Got two uh, good questions to get through, so let's just hop into it. Question number one. Why didn't Jonah throw himself from the ship instead of telling the sailors to do it? Maybe you know what this is referring to. If not, we'll refresh ourselves in the story of Jonah. So in Jonah chapter 1, God tells the prophet Jonah, basically, go do your job. Go speak for me and go do it in the city of Nineveh. And in response... Jonah gets up and he goes to Tarshish, which is as far away from Nineveh as you could possibly go. It was the edge of the known world. Most think it was in uh, modern-day Spain. Uh, So just appreciate Jonah, when God tells him what to do, he doesn't just sit home and do nothing. He travels all the way down to Joppa to hop a boat with some pagan mariners headed west. He doesn't just do nothing. He does the exact opposite of what God says. So here's what happens as soon as he hops on that boat. Jonah 1 and verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean? What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this event is evil, this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He, Jonah, said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So this big storm has fallen on this ship. And they're hurling cargo off the ship so that it won't sink. And when none of that is working, they begin to resort to supernatural means of salvation. They're appealing to their gods. And then when they, they and, uh, encourage Jonah to do the same, and then they go a step further, they determine the reason why this is happening is because of this guy, Jonah, who is sleeping down in the cargo hold, down in steerage, who won't get up. Uh, even though they're all about to drown, he's just there. But he's the reason why this is happening. So they go and they interrogate him. They find out this is happening because Jonah is trying to run away from his God. And so the question brings up the events of verse 12, where we left off, where Jonah suggests that the only way this ship will be saved is if they toss him overboard because I'm the reason this storm has come upon us. So if you get rid of me, then you'll get rid of the storm. The question is, why did Jonah tell them to throw him overboard. Couldn't Jonah have just jumped overboard himself and drowned himself in the sea without involving the mariners in what would arguably be an act of murder, at least they're complicit in his death suddenly. He involves them 
in it when Jonah could just as easily jumped over himself. Now, the short answer is, I have no idea why Jonah said this. But I think the, the questioner wants a little more than that, so I'll, I'll attempt that. But the fact is, the text just doesn't say what was going through Jonah's mind at this moment. Um, what I can do is try to pick up a few motifs in the text that at least show how Jonah's actions here fit in with the rest of the actions and sort of paint a picture of this man, Jonah, and his character that might give us a clue as to what is going on here. So here's what I want you to notice. Jonah is treated in this story like a passive and useless piece of cargo. Jonah in this scene, in Jonah chapter 1, is literally luggage. When he gets on the boat, He goes down to the inner part of the ship where the cargo is kept. The whole time he's on the ship, even in the storm, he is in the cargo hold doing what cargo does. Absolutely nothing. Even as the mariners are running around and bailing water and appealing to their gods, Jonah sits down below doing nothing, even sleeping. While everyone else is rowing and panicking, Jonah is sleeping. And then I want you to notice when the cargo is thrown overboard... The verb used for what they do with the cargo in chapter 1 and verse 5 is hurl, right? So they hurl the cargo of the ship into the sea. And that is the very same verb for what they finally do to Jonah in chapter 1 and verse 15. So Jonah says in uh, verse 12, you'll have to throw me overboard. And they don't want to do that. They have more respect for Jonah's life than Jonah has. But finally, they decide that's what they must do. So verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from his raging. Jonah is a piece of luggage in this story. He doesn't do anything, and he doesn't care about anything. He doesn't care about his own life. He doesn't care about the life of the sailors. He doesn't care about the lives of the people in Nineveh. The sailors care more about his life than he does, And Jonah does not care if the sailors might incur guilt in his death while when they throw him overboard. He could care less about any of that. Seems to me for Jonah to get up and to walk the deck and take some initiative and jump overboard would require him to be of more use than luggage. And in this story, he is simply not. So my answer to the question is this. It's because Jonah in this story is absolutely useless and callous. He knows why the storm is happening, but the mariners still have to pry it out of him. He knows what will stop the storm, and he has to have that pried out of him, and then when he knows what will stop the storm, he himself can't be bothered to do it. He says, ah, you'll have to throw me overboard, I guess. Now, of course, we need to say the real solution to this problem, to this storm that's fallen on the ship, is not to throw Jonah overboard. The real solution to this problem would be for Jonah to repent for Jonah to turn around and go the other direction toward Nineveh. Turn around and head toward Nineveh in obedience to God. God's not going to send any storms to prevent that. But Jonah never entertains that possibility. He is absolutely useless and callous. He would rather die than go to Nineveh. He doesn't care, care if the sailors might die too. And he doesn't care if the sailors might be implicated in his death. I, I was, uh, if, if you were here for my Wednesday night class on Jonah not too long ago, Recall, I was really, really hard on Jonah in our class, and that's because I think the text is really, really hard on Jonah. 
I think this is a prime example of why Jonah is one of the least likable people in the Bible, one of the worst prophets in all the Bible. He simply does not care about anyone. And so I don't know the exact reason why he says this, but I've tried to paint a picture of the type of man we see in the book of Jonah, and it is a useless and callous and uh, and really hate-filled man. That's why he doesn't throw himself over the ship, and he says, you all do it. So that's my best crack at that. So that's kind of an interesting kind of whimsical question. We move now to our second question, which is a more serious-minded question that uh, we'll think about here. Second question is this. Are lawsuits biblical? Are lawsuits biblical? Be turning to 1 Corinthians 6. We'll get there in a second. 1 Corinthians 6. So, first thing we do on questions like these is make sure we're all talking about the same thing and have an understanding of what it is we're talking about. So, first question is, what, what in the world do we mean by lawsuit? To begin with just the dictionary definition, a lawsuit is a claim or dispute brought to a court of law for adjudication. All right, so that's that. Now, I'm no lawyer, but it's my understanding that any case, criminal or civil, but any case that enters into the legal system could be called a lawsuit. One party claims that another has done something which is against the law, which justice needs to be served, and it is brought into the legal system as a suit and uh, to be adjudicated. A criminal case involves enforcing the laws of the state. In those cases, it's almost always the government. It's like the district attorney, for example, who brings the suit. So you see these cases, it's the state of Texas versus or the United States against, against so-and-so. It's the way it is with criminal cases often. Someone has broken a law that's on the books. They have, they have sort of uh, transgressed the law of the land, and so justice is brought from the state onto the person. We don't normally refer to those as lawsuits, in my experience at least. Technically, I'm told they are more often, and this is what I think the question is really getting at, we think of civil cases in relation to lawsuits. A civil case begins when one party claims to have been harmed by the actions of another. It could be another person, it could be a business or some other entity. One party claims to have been harmed by the actions of another, and they go to court to ask for relief from their harm, typically financial relief of some, some form. So, there's two really big categories of these. I know this is a lot more complicated than I'm going to paint it. But here's just two big categories of civil cases that we commonly call lawsuits. One would be what's called a tort claim. Tort. Um, so a tort is a wrongful act that results in injury to someone's person, property, or reputation. And that injured person in that case is entitled to compensation. And so you hurt me or my property, or my reputation in some way. And so I go to law, I go to court, in order to regain something that's been taken from me wrongly. So, for example, here would be a tort claim. Let's say a drug company puts out a drug that is supposed to help with some condition, but it turns out that that drug causes cancer. And let's even say that the company knew it did, but didn't advertise that or let anyone know. So those who took the drug and got cancer and have proof that the drug caused the cancer, which would be a real slam dunk, they would have a good tort claim. That you have harmed me in this way, you have taken away something, and so we go to court in order to try to regain something that was lost. That would be an example, really cut and dry example of a tort claim. The other big category would be a breach of contract, would be a civil case. 
Someone fails to perform the terms of a contract that's been agreed to by two parties. And so a contractor fails to complete the job they said they would complete. They took the money, but they didn't do the work. Or on the other way, an employer doesn't get paid. An employee doesn't get paid what the employer promised. They did the work, but they didn't get the money that was agreed to for the work. Um, and so in those cases, the harmed person, the person that's been wronged, the person that's been hurt by the breach of contract, they can't get justice from the other party who refuses to hold up their end of the deal, and so they bring it to the courthouse to enforce the terms of the contract. If you won't do what you said you would, they're going to tell you to do what you said you would. So basically, in my simplistic non-lawyer brain, that's what we're talking about when we talk about lawsuits. So for the purposes of our discussion, we're going to think about whether it is right for a disciple to ever initiate a civil lawsuit. That's how I'm going to take the question. Are there circumstances under which we could try to use the force of law to get compensation for some injustice done to us or to get someone to, uh, to get law, the law to enforce the terms of a contract that's been broken? That's how I'm going to take the question. If the person who asked this question meant something totally different from that, then bring it up to me and we'll do part two Q&A night. But for our purposes, that's what I'm going with. So here's how we're going to approach it. I want to begin... In 1 Corinthians 6, and I begin here because this is a whole paragraph in the New Testament that addresses the subject of lawsuits, really a particular kind of lawsuit, as we'll see. So I'll throw this up on the screen. What 1 Corinthians 6 is about is about brethren bringing suit against brethren, brethren suing brethren. Um, This is one of many issues in the church of Corinth. Uh, This is a profoundly... profoundly, uh, pathological church. There is a lot of issues here. And so 1 Corinthians 6 tells the story of their suing each other. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But the brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Have lawsuits at all with one another. It's already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So basically, Christians were pursuing legal action against other members of the church. Verses 7 and 8, he uses the word defrauded, which makes us think that it has to do with economic disputes, like a broken contract or something like that. So let's say that these two Corinthian guys, John and Bill, they're members of the Corinthian church. John lends Bill some money, and when Bill misses a payment, John takes him to court, suing him for breach of contract. If convicted in that day and time, Bill would be subject to fines or or worse, even imprisonment. There was such thing as debtor's prison in that day and time. That's the sort of thing that was happening in Corinth among church members. And I think you can pick up the tone of of what Paul says. Paul, this is really an expression of outrage. 
it's really, he is as outraged about this as he was about the events of chapter 5, where there's this really scandalous uh, sexual sin happening in the church. He is as scandalized by what's happening here. The church is simply not acting like the church. They're not acting like brothers and sisters who have formed a community that models the love and forgiveness of Christ. They certainly have not done that. They are acting like greedy and cutthroat Corinthian businessmen who are obsessed with profit and obsessed with rights. So I want you to notice Paul's response consists almost entirely of questions. All he does in his response basically is ask eight questions, one after the other. Rhetorical questions whose answer is obvious because he wants to bring home a point. So let's just go through the questions. There's eight questions. Question number one, verse one. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So that's the first question. Christians have understandings about love and forgiveness and fellowship and community that the world does not understand. Only someone who knows Jesus and knows the cross and has experienced forgiveness at the cross can really understand these things. And yet, he says, you bring your grievances to unrighteous pagan judges who don't know the first thing about Jesus or his love or his grace or his forgiveness. And by the way, Paul was not kidding when he called the Roman courts and judges unrighteous. Um, Judges, I am told, in that day and time, uh, almost always favored the richer party in civil cases, those who could afford better lawyers, and their testimony was considered to be more trustworthy. The more money you had, the more trustworthy you were considered to be. Uh, There's a uh, first century work, uh, a uh, sort of, I think it's sometimes considered the first novel, one of the first novels ever. It's called The Satyricon. And there's a character in that book who says this, of what, avail are laws, of what avail are laws to be where money rules alone and the poor suitor can never succeed? Lawsuit is nothing more than a public auction. So he's characterizing a typical civil, civil case in that day and time in Rome. And he says, lawsuit is nothing more than a public auction. To the highest bidder will go the judge's, the judge's ruling. And so what Paul is asking in verse 1 is, are you really going to Rome for justice? I think the likely scenario here, you see hints of this in other parts of 1 Corinthians. The likely scenario here is that wealthier Christians in Corinth, knowing Rome's bias toward the rich, were taking advantage of their poorer brethren. Or they would just know that if I wanted to get something out of one of my brethren and I have more money than him, I go to court and I get what I want very quickly. So that's question one. Why do you dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of before the saints? Now the questions get interesting. Here's question two, verse two. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? What Paul is pointing out is how backwards this is. How absurd to ask the world to judge between the saints when it is the saints who will one day stand in judgment against the world. Now, in what sense do we, will we, judge the world? You know, I thought God is is the judge of all mankind. Of course, that's true. But there's also a sense in which the age to come, the saints will be, they're described in in the Bible as sort of co-regents of God, as sort of stewards of his rule. Daniel 7 and verse 18 portrays a new age, the new age this way. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Jesus told the apostles, and I'll put that 
underline that point. He tells this to the apostles, yet still there is this element. He tells the apostles, in the new age, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there, there is an element of wielding judgment, standing in judgment against the world. And even our lives live for God, stand against, and sort of stand in judgment against those lives which are lived live for for lesser things. So I don't know everything about verse 2 in this question, but what Paul is saying is, in some sense, the saints will be delegated responsibility, rule, even authority to judge in the new age. Remember in Eden, God's plan for man was to exercise dominion over creation. And I think the Bible envisions the age to come as sort of a new Eden when we'll do that again. The next question is a follow-up. So the next question is the second half of verse 2. So the first question, do you not know... um, Sorry, do you not know the saints are to judge the world? And the second question, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So if God plans to entrust you with the authority to act as judge in the age to come, how is it that you're so incapable of doing it right now in your piddly little squabbles so that you need to ask the world to come judge between you? If you can't be trusted to adjudicate your own trivial matters of the here and now, How in the world can God trust you with any greater responsibilities in eternity? You're supposed to stand in judgment of the world. And yet here you are going to the world and asking them to give you judgments, to give you judgments. Something is very backwards here. The next question, verse 3. Do you not know, (coughs) do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So Paul's just really going out on the ledge here. A lot of people have lots of questions about this verse. Um, It's prompted speculation that in the New Age, the saints will be in a position more prominent than angels, which I don't think is that controversial. Even the Hebrew writer argues in Hebrews 1 that it is angels who serve us, not we who serve angels. And angels also worship Jesus, and so should we. But I'll just say this, in the Bible, humans are the focus of creation. We are created in God's image. God's actions and sacrifice are done on our behalf. Angels are messengers in this plan, but they are not the centerpiece of it. And so it makes sense, I think, when we are raised from the dead, when we're restored to perfect fellowship with God, we would not work in the service of angels, but only in the service of God. And regardless of all that, Paul's point is this. He's showing the ridiculous contrast between the amazing future God has in store for his saints, judging angels, whatever that means. Look at this amazing future God has in store for his saints and now compare it to your inability to judge between minor property disputes here and now. Are you in a position to do these great things? It certainly doesn't look like it. The next question, verse 4. So if you have such cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? This age, this is a big theme in Corinthians, this age, this uh, age's wise men, its rulers, its judges, 1 Corinthians 2, 6, he says, these are all doomed to pass away. The wise of this age, the people who are in charge, they are all doomed to pass away. What he's asking in verse 4 is, so why do you bring the church's business before these judges who are doomed to perish, and who know nothing of God's wisdom. Paul adds in verse 5, I say this to your shame, just to be clear. You ought to be ashamed of yourself for how you're acting, for how incapable you are of doing justice God's way, of how far short you've fallen of embodying Jesus' character. 
Next question, second half of verse 5. <clears throat> Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? I think this may be the most scathing question of all. One of Corinth's biggest problems was that they deemed themselves wise and enlightened. They were very proud and very arrogant. Paul repeatedly um, um, chastises them for. What he asks is, is he plays off that proud self-image. He says, okay, guys, if you're so wise, if you're so smart, if you know so much, how come you don't have enough wise men in this congregation to adjudicate these disputes? If you're so wise, why aren't you wise enough to adjudicate these disputes? Does it really have to come to a point where brother sues brother in an unbeliever's court? Just how incompetent are you to handle your own business? Just how impotent is your leadership? And then the last two questions, questions 7 and 8, are in verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> Have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And so here's second to last question. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And then he says in verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. When you take your brother to court, he says, there are no winners. It doesn't matter what the judge says. There are no winners, only losers. You know, okay, you won the case. You extracted money from your brother. Congratulations. You've now impoverished your brother. You've embittered him. You might have split the church. You've shown the world that these Christians can't handle their business. They don't know how to get along. What a great victory it is. Go pat yourself on the back is what he's saying. Paul says there are worse things in the world than losing some money I'm entitled to or having my rights violated. There are worse things in the world than that. Brethren losing their souls, that's probably worse than me losing some money. Churches being destroyed, that's probably better than me getting everything that's coming to me. Or rather, that's probably worse than, than getting everything that's coming to me. What Paul's getting at is, where are your priorities? What in the world do you care about? What do you want? Are you more concerned with getting every penny coming to you or concerned with saving every soul you possibly can. So, to uh, sum up this point, when it comes to the question of, can brethren sue brethren, I don't know how you get around 1 Corinthians 6. I think it speaks pretty clearly. Disputes between brethren need to be handled in-house. And I think it's important to stress the reason why that's the case is as important as simply the statement. I don't think it's enough to simply say the Bible says you're not allowed to do that. You need to really, we need to internalize the reasons why we don't do that. Paul is very concerned that brethren are going to law, verse 1, before the unrighteous. That they are putting the church's problems, verse 4, before those who have no standing in the church. They are, in verse 6, going to law before unbelievers. This is absurd to Paul because Christians ought to be the people who have the wisdom of God and who know how to live together as the family of God, and who know how to love and to sacrifice for another's good, which is, after all, why we're here in the first place, because Jesus loved and gave self-sacrificially. Paul's question is, what business do we have going to a world that doesn't know anything about that? Handle grievances among the saints, he says in verse 1. There ought to be someone among us, verse 5, wise enough to settle disputes between now, I don't have the know-how or the foresight 
about how to handle every single situation. I am sure you could come up with some very complicated situation where there's two brethren who have some dispute and, oh, wouldn't the, the legal route be the best? I am sure you could come up with something and I would be scratching my head and say, I don't really, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have a hard and fast rule about the way all disputes must be handled, but I do think we just have to be, try really hard to be faithful to Scripture. And 1 Corinthians 6 speaks pretty unequivocally. If we're really faithful and mature disciples... Paul says we should be capable of handling our business. We should be capable of working things out with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be capable of adjudicating disputes. We should be able to even absorb mistreatment at times with grace and forgiveness. And if we are incapable of doing that, and if we are unable to resolve our own problems internally, something is seriously wrong. We have missed something fundamental about the gospel message. We are called to be an example to the world, not plaintiffs and defendants in the world's courts. We are called to stand in judgment of the world, not to go appeal to the world to tell us what justice is. So that's 1 Corinthians 6, and that's the matter of brethren suing brethren. Now, let's widen it out. Last question I want to ask. Okay, any lawsuits ever? Question mark. I think 1 Corinthians 6 speaks clearly about a particular set of lawsuits, Brother going to court with brother, trying to extract money from them that way. When they should be brothers and should submit themselves to the authority of the elders, who themselves should have enough wisdom to adjudicate disputes like that. But I think the answer to the question is less clear as soon as you get outside of the church. There is no paragraph-long step-by-step instructions for that in the Bible that I found. So here's what I want to do. Go with me to Acts 21. Acts 21. the closest thing I have to to an example here, and it's not a perfect one, um, but it's about the last third of the book of Acts. So in Acts 21, Paul is preaching in the temple, and the Jews who have been so antagonistic to him at every turn finally have him apprehended in Jerusalem. Let's read the story of Paul getting arrested here in Jerusalem. Acts 21, this is verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people in the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Thanks a lot. Verse 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. But when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob, uh, mob of the people followed, crying away with him. So Paul here is beaten and arrested for a lie. It was not true that he brought a Gentile in the temple. The text says he only, they only supposed that he had in verse 29. And from this point on in the book of Acts, 
From now on, Paul is going to be in custody of the Roman government. He's really kind of a political hot potato. They don't want to just let him go and, and um, foster this unruliness among the Jews. They don't quite know what to do with him, so he's getting passed around around all these magistrates. And what he does throughout the rest of Acts is speak before magistrates and speak before judges, making legal arguments in his own defense. So in Acts 22, when he's about to be whipped by some Roman soldiers, he speaks up and he begins to talk about Roman law. This is Acts 22 and verse 25. Acts 22 and verse 25. When they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Paul knows what Roman law says about how Roman citizens are to be treated. And they are not to be subjected to treatment like this unless they, unless they have been tried and convicted of a crime and sentenced to this. And that has not happened with Paul. And so what Paul does here is he brings up Roman law to these Roman soldiers, holding them to the standard that they themselves have agreed to. You see more of this in Acts 24. Paul is summoned before Felix, a Roman governor in Caesarea. He speaks up before Felix in his own defense. He gives his version of events of what happened in Jerusalem and how the charges made against him were not true and how he ought not to be in prison, not be in custody, but be free to go and preach. And then he also, of course, when he's before Felix, preaches the gospel of Felix. In Acts 25 and 26, he speaks before Agrippa, doing the same thing, arguing for his innocence and also preaching the gospel to him. Before the end of Acts, Paul ultimately appeals to Caesar. He asks that his case be raised to the highest levels of Roman government, that he might be free from the charges and allowed to travel and preach freely. Now, I am aware this is no one-to-one comparison. Um, First of all, Paul is a defendant in these cases. He's not a plaintiff. He's not making accusations. He's defending himself against accusations. Um, Paul is not trying to extract financial remuneration from anyone here. Um, What he's trying to do is to stop being whipped and to get released from prison so he can go preach. And to be sure, Paul is not calling 1-800 numbers of lawyers trying to get an insurance settlement. That's definitely not what he's doing either. All of that said, it is at least an example of an apostle working within the legal system so that truth and justice can win the day. That's at the very least, at a a sort of basic level, what is happening in these stories. He's working within the Roman legal system so that truth and justice can win the day and that justice be served to whatever extent that legal system was capable of. He invokes Roman law in order to hold Roman soldiers accountable in their treatment of him. He speaks as a defendant in a lawsuit before the Roman magistrates. He argues what is right. He pronounces what is true. He tells them what justice looks like and how he thinks it should be served. There there is something about this in the Law of Moses as as well. To quote uh, uh, a law from the Law of Moses, this is Exodus 23 and verse 6. You shall not pervert justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. 
and shall not pervert justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. It was important to God that justice be served, even in human courts, and especially God was concerned because justice is often perverted against those who don't have the means to defend themselves. So a man can bring a lawsuit seeking for justice to be served. In the law of Moses, God said, I want justice to be served in the courtroom. So let me try to say a few things here to uh, tie up all the places we've gone. Lawsuits and lawyers uh, have a bad name, and rightly so. You've got ambulance-chasing lawyers. You have people who magically need a neck brace the day they have to testify in their personal injury case. You get people who claim millions of dollars in damages for pain and emotional suffering because the hairdresser gave them a bad haircut. You have people who use civil courts as a way of extracting money from honest people who've done no wrong. It should be obvious that a disciple will never do anything remotely like that. That a disciple will never do that is anything in the arena that even has a whiff of dishonesty, of underhandedness, of greed, or of predation. But if we set aside those egregious examples, we have all those really obvious examples of those, those uh, frivolous lawsuits. Let's, let's think of some un, unegregious examples, some examples in, w- which take away the worst of our legal system. It seems eminently reasonable to me that a Christian might have an experience where it would be justified for them to bring a lawsuit against someone else not within the church. Let me just give you a few very cut dry examples and see what you would you think and what you would do in this in this situation. So, let's say a business has a cooler by the front door and that cooler is always leaking water and making the floor by the front door slick. They've been warned about it multiple times. There's even documentation the health inspector has reprimanded them for it and told them they must fix it, but they have not. The floor is still slick. And so I walk in, I slip on that slippery floor, and I break my arm. The owner, let's say, refuses to accept any responsibility for it. He said, well, you should have had better balance. Would I be justified in bringing a suit against him to get that recalcitrant owner to pay the medical bills for my broken arm and maybe to, to get the court to tell him he must fix that cooler so that no one else slips. Could I use the force of law to try to get him to do those things? Can a Christian utilize the legal system to get people to do what they ought to do? Can it use the legal system to give, force them to give remuneration to those they've legitimately harmed for refusing to do the right thing? That's the question I'm raising. So I'm purging the lawsuit question of all these egregious, frivolous examples And let's just get a really black and white one. What would a Christian be right to do in that case? Another example. A drug company puts out a drug they say treats acne. And it turns out, while it might treat acne, it also causes cancer. And many people who took that drug develop a very rare kind of cancer at a very young age. Let's also say, this is just a hypothetical so I can make up whatever I want. Let's also say that a document leaked proving that the drug company knew all along of a study that warned that the drug raised cancer risks, but they had hidden the study away and they had forced all the researchers in that study to sign non-disclosure agreements, a really big scandal, a really big conspiracy and cover-up. Would a disciple who had taken that drug and gotten cancer as a result have reason to bring lawsuit against the drug company to say that you, because of the harm you've caused me, should pay for the treatments that I have Uh, that I need now for my cancer, and maybe for the work that I'm unable to do now. Would that be reasonable? 
So there are very cut and dry hypotheticals where one party is very clearly culpable, has very clearly acted negligently and even wickedly. <clears throat> In those clear-cut hypotheticals, personally, I cannot find fault with a Christian who wants to utilize a legal system to get people to do what they ought to have done in the first place and even to give remuneration to those they have legitimately harmed. One of the roles of civil government, I'll remind you, Romans 13 and verse 3, is to be a terror to those of bad conduct. To be a terror to those of bad conduct. Now, I am also aware that in the real world, those very cut and dry cases are very rare. So at one end of the lawsuit spectrum, we've got those frivolous lawsuits where someone's just trying to extract money from someone else, in which case Christians have no business being involved. At the other end, you've got massive negligence and even evil and totally innocent victims, in which case, personally, I think Christians can be involved. The fact is, most cases are somewhere in between those two, where the facts are murky and culpability is not uh, nearly as obvious. I don't have a chart that shows when we pass the threshold from one to the other. I don't have that chart. I don't have the wisdom or the know-how to decide that. All I can advise is to have a mind and a heart that is steeped in the words of Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, that we have just thoroughly imbibed the gospel in Jesus' character. And then we use that Christ-shaped mind to exercise godly discernment in every single decision we make, including the ones we don't have obvious black and white answers for, including the decisions we make that don't have an obvious proof text to point to and say, oh, the right thing to do is obvious. Let Paul's advice to Titus guide your every decision. Here's what he said to Titus. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. And show perfect courtesy toward all people. Imbibe that and then let that guide every action you ever do. So that's my best crack at it. Thank you for those questions. Always interesting to see the questions you give me. Never boring uh, preparing for these. Maybe there's someone here this evening that needs to come seek the prayers of this church. Someone needs to come and obey the gospel, to put Christ on in baptism. Whatever your need, come forward now as we stand and sing. For his orders, ready to obey. Who will follow Jesus, serving him today? Who will follow Jesus, who will make reply? I am on the Lord's side, Master, here am I. Who will follow Jesus, who will make reply?
needs to partake of the Lord's Supper.